All right, let's, uh, let's go to text messages right now. Um, and let me see here. Let me see, let me see, let me see. Oh, we've got a whole bunch of text messages here. Did we read that one already? I can't remember. Okay, electric vehicles. There's one here about electric vehicles. Came through earlier in the show. Where did that one go? Mm-hmm. Uh, it it will be much cheaper for companies to make a deal with householders to rebate or pay them to allow electric cars to charge the passing cars who need it. Yeah, I, I think that's a um, that's a really valid idea. You just mm. you could you can just charge, you know, a, a small dollar fee. You know, throw some coins in the in 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 the in the slot and it starts charging your car or swipe your card. Mm. Or well, we've already talked On about the outside of your house how in Indiana. They're just like putting like electromagnetic rails on under the roads yeah. that can charge your electric charge your car as you drive. Absolutely, like, dude, that is that is the most genius thing ever. And there's another one here lamenting what's happening in Haiti, uh, discriminate mm. against their own people. There is no money in that. Sad of what is happening there is such a beautiful country, an amazing history. Children being sold into pedophilia by the thousands. I suppose this is a perfect example of how Satan's world will look like before the second coming, the return of Christ. That's a, a really good observation there because, you know, you want, to went, you, you, you want an example of somewhere that is fully under Satan's control and you look at a nation that is in anarchy. Mm. Uh, the whole world worships the beast. They no longer worship God but Satan and his holy day. Only that is why the plagues come. They have totally rejected God. Uh, then we have the great majority of the world who don't, believe in Jesus or will simply reject him, will all bend their knees and see their folly uh, before fire comes down from heaven and devours them. Um, Let me see here. All these people, the Caesars, the queens, the kings who ruled mostly brought a lot of suffering to the world. Many had very long reigns. What did they really achieve? Who talks about them today? Jesus had three and a half years of ministry and changed the world for his glory forever. This world and the world to come. No other offered hope and eternal salvation as a free gift. Mm. That is such that that's like one of my favorite apologetics for Jesus is cause and effect. Yes, like you know, because because there's a lot of religions that are very big. You know, Islam, that's Hinduism, right. all these kinds of things. And know. these were religions that were created by a founder who spent his lifetime creating the religion, but then as well spread through being picked up by a state. Yes. Or by, you know, a political entity, Absolutely. like a country or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, particularly, you know, you look at the, the origins of like, you know, I, I think Hinduism and Islam are great examples because you see political divides because of that very thing. Yep. Because nations... State religions. They're state religions. Whereas like re- Christianity didn't become a state religion of no, anything. all state boundaries. Like, and yes, it did become a state religion. And then, but that was like 300 years that after. That was right. You know, that, that started the Dark what, Ages. What a disaster. <laughs> but that, yeah, that's the point. It's like, how can one person, you know, without state, who did it for three years without state backing, you know, inspire such a worldwide movement for good and for peace? Uh, In an era like that with such low, you know, connection. He didn't, it wasn't trending on Twitter. Guy was just walking around and talking and it, it changed the world. Yeah, and you know we were, well, I, and I guess we'll get into this with uh, Dr. Sven Erstring later uh, when he comes back in December. But you know, you look at the number of manuscripts you've got of the of the history of the Gallic Wars, the number of ancient manuscripts. I think there's like ten, and they all contradict each other. And then you look at the you know number of ancient manuscripts that we've got of the biographies of Jesus, and there's like twenty five thousand. 
Mm. And they don't contradict each other. Mm. You know. Powerful. So much that we could look at right there. All right, the Bible talks about seeking God and the Bible talks about finding him. The Bible talks about the rise and the fall of empires and the Bible also talks about individual actions before they happen. Mm. Some of them, you know, just hours away. So you you know you go to Daniel chapter seven for example, and you've got you know the you've got two and a half thousand histories of the world years of history of the world with mm. major empires coming and going. Yes, that we have now seen fulfilled. We've seen ninety nine percent of that prophecy fulfilled. So we know we're living right at the end of it. Whereas if you go to Matthew chapter twenty six and verse thirty four, when you know Jesus makes a prophecy and he says to Peter, "I surely I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times." It's a prophecy to an individual that's going to take place in a matter of hours. Mm. So the question that we're going to delve into into today is: when God makes a prophecy, does that mean that God has predestined us Ooh. and has forced our hand? Like, because there's a like very this. interesting prophecy. For those of you who are unaware, we're working our way through the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we've been working on it for the last couple of months, and so far we are up to chapter 4. <laughs> Speeding through. Speeding through. Chapter uh-huh. 4, verse 25 and 28 is what we're going to 25 to 28 is what we're going to look at today. Let's read what the Bible has to say. The Bible says, In the future, when you have children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, do not corrupt yourselves by making idols of any kind. This is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and will arouse his anger. Today I call on heaven and earth as witnesses against you. If you break my covenant, you will quickly disappear from the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. You will live there only a short time, then you will be utterly destroyed. For the Lord will scatter you among the nations where only a few of you will survive. There, in a foreign land, you'll worship idols made from wood and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Okay, it's interesting here. There's a couple of things that jump out. So in verse 25, you know, when you give birth to children and children's children, Mm-hmm. And you've remained long in the land, and mm-hmm. you will corrupt yourselves and make carved images or the likeness of anything. So uh, the the Bible here talks about the third generation. Mm-hmm. Third generation is going to go into idolatry. Mm. So does that mean that the third generation is forced into idolatry because God has prophesied it? You know, when God prophesies something, does that mean that they are predestined? And it's like, well, you don't actually have any personal choice. There's no choice that you can make here. Mm. Well, there's, there's some people who would certainly say so. Um, even amongst Christian circles, yes. that would make yes. the, that would strongly make the point. Yep, like that—that's God's plan, you know, for them to go into idolatry and die and suffer. So God's and, sovereignty comes to the point where human choice doesn't exist. Well, yeah, that's what some people say. It's, which is pretty scary because if choice doesn't <laughs> exist, really love does not exist, and we need to remember that the Bible says that God is a God of love. You can't have love without choice. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. But before we even delve further into that subject, and by the way, on this issue, we would love to hear from you. Yes. Our number is 0491064669. Just because God has prophesied something, does that mean that it is predestined? Mm. I'd love to take a step back as well and just quickly consider like what, the implications are of God and and of the world that we live in and why we're here if everything is predestined. 
The implications are that God's a horror. Yeah, and that he created <laughs> Satan so that Satan could destroy our world, and you know the only the only thing that God could get out of something like that is entertainment. We're just his TV set. That's right, and and I feel like you know I've had this conversation with people who subscribe to the you know predestination view of God, and it's like oh well, it's to show us how good. God is, and I'm like, well, if but if God's this sovereign, I don't free, need I don't need pain and suffering yeah. and death in my life and the loss of loved ones and so forth to understand how good God is. I can I can understand God's goodness without all of those things. And it's a, an argument that quickly unravels because you take a step back and it's like, well, couldn't God predestine me to already have known that without going through that experience, or does God enjoy pain and death and suffering? Like. That's the ultimate thing that, uh, that right. it comes to. Does God enjoy pain and death and suffering? Because if he is really sovereign and really in control of literally everything that happens and we have no personal choice, then why does pain and death and suffering exist? Yes. Which then it's like, okay, well, let's look at the Bible and see like, okay, well, you know, does the Bible say that God enjoys it and tolerates it? And then the Bible like consistently makes the point that like, no, it's like God is so terribly against sin and pain and death and suffering. And he sent his son to die for the world so that he could get rid of pain and death and suffering. And it's like, wait, what? So so see, here's an interesting (laughs) thought. Here's an interesting thought. We just had a quiz question about Jonah. Yes. What what, what prophecy did God give to Jonah? Yeah, perfect. Jonah was like, basically, he said, go to Nineveh. And mm-hmm. tell that um, amount of people that is currently unspecified because we're giving people, amount of people, yes. people uh, time to give us a call and answer the quiz question. Uh, but he said, go and say to that unspecified amount of people um, that you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. And what happened 40 days later? They weren't destroyed. Okay, so what we see here is the condition, an example of the conditional nature of prophecy. Hmm. And so when you read in Deuteronomy chapter five, 4 and verse 25, you're not reading about God condemning these people to idolatry. Mm. You are reading about the conditional nature of prophecy. Yes. And it's conditional because human choice exists, and without human choice there is no such thing as love. Mm. Love cannot exist without personal free choice. Mm. And so, and we can see some great examples of this because you know we look at the history of what happened to the nation of Israel. Did they go into idolatry? Yes, they did. Yep. Did all of them go into idolatry? No. No. Nope. Why? Because some of them exercised their freedom of choice. God goes through here and is like, "Oh, you're all going to go into idolatry in the third generation." Mm. But not all of them did. There were many that remained faithful, and we read their stories in the Bible. And, uh, you know, the the way that God was able to work through them at that particular time because they exercised their free choice. Mm. God seeing the future does not preordain the future. God seeing the future, you know, God knows the, the end from the beginning, but his foreknowledge of the future, even of our free choices. So his foreknowledge of our free choices, that doesn't... Um, that doesn't mean that our freedom is in any way mm. done away with. Um, so just a text coming through here from one of our listeners. If God didn't know what the future of the world holds or what we will do with our free choices, he would not be God. Yes. Knowing and forcing ah, is a really Ooh. important point. Knowing and forcing 
are two very different things. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Good text message right there. Okay, but let's go back to our Bible passage. The Bible says in the uh, in the third generation, you know, your children's children are going to forget me and go into idolatry. What's going on there? Third generation. What's up with the third generation? Well, well I think the point he's making is that the third generation will go into idolatry. I know that sounds simple, but essentially <laughs> he's 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 just foretelling them. And it, I think it's so interesting though when when a lot of people come to the Bible with the perspective of oh, if God showed up and just like told us to do this or to do that, we would do it, and because we would know He was God and. Yeah, but the, the actual, like, the, the very clear point that it's making here is God showed up to them, forewarned them about things that they would do that would lead them to destruction, like, and then they go and do it and get destroyed. Like, it's it's so clear that, that God, God is, like, trying everything he can. Like, God is just, you know, in terms of how he functions, like, he knows exactly what we'll do, and it, and it just proves here, like, Human nature is human nature. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, these people, they had God talking to them, telling them, oh, you know, maybe you should train up your kids to, like, you know, in your generation to, like, love God and warn them that they were... The- in fact, Moses wrote a whole book here, the book of Deuteronomy, to forewarn them everything that God said, and he wrote it when he was in the presence of God and when everyone else was in the presence of God, too. So it's like, okay, Moses wrote down a bunch of things that we saw happen. Like, we saw God... Moses wrote down a bunch of things about it, and we all confirm the testimony of Moses, and we'll all pass this on to the future generations, so that they will know for sure. And it's like, so there's no time for myth. You know, this is removed from reality. Like, this is a real thing that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And no one listens, and they all go into idolatry, and they all get go into slavery, and their nation gets destroyed, and, like, it's... ah. It's... Quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. You know, when I read this passage here, there's something that jumps out to me, and that is the cyclical nature of Christianity. Mm. The cyclical nature of Christianity works over four generations, and so when you double that, it, three to four. So when you double that, it becomes uh, six to eight mm. generations. And the way the, the way that the, the cyclical nature of Christianity really follows the principle of in, in, in some ways it has a relationship to, you know, hard times make strong men, strong yes. men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make, make hard times, mm. which is the cyclical nature of, of history. But this is what I see in Christianity. So often you and I, when we reach out to people um, with the message of the gospel, we are reaching out to people who recognize their need. And the reason mm. that they recognize their need is because their life has turned into a train wreck. Mm. We rarely reach out to people whose lives are just going along great. We mostly reach out to people whose lives have turned into a train wreck. And so um, as a result of that, we bring all kinds of misfits along to church. Mm. And then they find Jesus Christ and their life is transformed. Totally. And they break that cycle and then they raise children. Right, And their children are followers of Jesus. And because their children are followers of Jesus, they become incredibly successful in life. Mm. Because be- being a-, a follower of Jesus is not going to turn your life into a train wreck. And it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to become wealthy. It does mean that you're going to become successful, a mm. good, sane, sober, moral person. Mm. And so they are living their life as a second-generation Christian now, as a good, sane, sober, moral person, and they raise children that are good, sane, sober, moral people, but they've never felt their need of Christ like their grandparents did Mm. who were without Christ. Yes. 
And because they don't feel their need of Christ in the same way that their grandparents did, you know, their their parents saw the transformation often of their parent of their parents, mm. and it has a major impact on their life. You get this third generation; they haven't seen it or experienced it, mm. and they are the ones who start to get all wonky. And this is why we talk about you know the third and fourth generation that leaves Christianity because they get all wonky; they're rich and increased with goods; they're in need of nothing. And the reason that they are rich and increasing with goods and need of nothing is because their parents and their grandparents have found Christ. Well, they become rich and increase with goods, and then they raise children that are delinquents mm. and whose lives become a train wreck because Christ is not a part of their lives. Mm. And that will go for a couple of generations until it reaches the point where someone says, I need something. Mm. So you'll have a couple of generations of delinquency, of addictions, of you know poverty, of you know all of this kind of thing. That you know lives that are train wrecks would be a couple of generations of that until somebody, you know, a, a kid at some particular point's like, okay, I'm not going to be like my parents. I need something in my life, and they find Christ, and the cycle reverses again. Mm. The moral of this story is not to have this cycle. You see this cycle played out in the Israelites. Over and over again. Let's not have that cycle taking place in Christianity. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. I also have a text message coming through here. It says, God is love. Everything he de- does and says is for our benefit, but he won't force us to love him or even listen to him. True love is the power of choice. See what happens to your life if you believe and do. You will see a miracle happen in your life. That is a promise from God. I think that's such a such an incredible point, the choice that God gives us to choose him. Because I think initially it's the evidence of his good character. So God, he's like, you can choose to love me um, because I'm not a God of force. I am a God of free choice. There are plenty of times in the Bible where God works in certain situations. And he's prophesying to these Israelites right here. He's like, my protection will be taken from you if you reject me and you will end up being enslaved. Now, this is a result, though, of the, this is God's response to, you know, the actions of the Israelites. It's interesting if if there are any chess fans out there. I've tried to get into chess a couple of times and I'm terrible at it. But, you know, you can end up in a situation where, you know, you're just being constantly chased around the board by your opponent and they always have the drop on you because they're always forcing your hand. You're the one that's like, at a disadvantage, it's like, oh man, how did I end up here? Like, how how can I how how is it that every move I make has already been, you know, played out by the other player, and they just have an exact response to it. Um, and it's essentially it's it's almost God who puts himself in that position where we're the ones making choices, and it's God who's kind of responding in a way um, to those choices that we make. Obviously, God has a will for all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, as we know um, <laughs> within the Bible. Uh, as we read, particularly, uh, I believe it's in the book of First Timothy chapter 2, you'll find that quote there. Yeah, God has a desire for all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And I think the ultimate um, example of him giving evidence to that is that, you know, he gave his son to die for us. But consistently, um, we are making choices and God is responding and working around those choices um, to try and bring out the best 
outcome um, without forcing choice. And I love how this text message has also advocated for the fact that then furthermore, you know, you have the ability to to make that choice, to to work through, you know, to to have that relationship with God, um, of which you can. And then it's you know, once you've made that choice, once you've kind of go on that journey, and as we talked about yesterday, seeking with all your heart that you may find, um, you can come to that point, you can come to that conclusion, um, and actually have an experience with him, which in the ex- lamp example that Lyle gave before about, you know, People that lack experience not knowing their need for Christ and that often leading them to very difficult situations. Uh, yeah, we are deeply in need to have that experience with him. So I love that text message and how it's advocated for that. Well, La, what are your thoughts? Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 29 is where we're up to is what my thoughts are. Awesome. There's a great passage here. Lawson, uh, why don't you jump into it for us? It says, But from there you will search again for the Lord. Uh, your God, and if you search for him with all your heart and soul, you will find him. Okay, so this is the really important th- point because, you know, once again, it brings up this idea of searching with all your heart and with all your soul. Mm. And you look at the history of the Israelite people and you read through the book of Judges and you're going to find where, you know, they'll have a generation or two that will follow God and then they'll have a generation or two that don't and they'll go into captivity and they'll be enslaved by surrounding nations, Mm. and then they'll turn to God and God will deliver them. And there's this up and down, in and out, backwards and forwards relationship with God until you come through to the time of the kings. Mm. You have King Saul comes along. He has an up and down relationship with God. You have King David comes along and he stabilizes it. You have King Solomon who comes along and introduces idolatry. Then you have King Rehoboam who comes along and the nation splits in two and you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south, uh, Israel in the north under Jeroboam. And the Israelites in the north, they go into idolatry and never come out. Mm. You know, they still like, they're worshipping Yahweh but in the form of a golden calf but sometimes they're just more honest and straight out <laughs> worship Baal. Um, that's, the, that's the story of, the, of what happens in the north. Then in the south you've got this on and off, mm. backwards and forwards. Righteous kings, bad kings, and it follows this same cycle. And when you look at these cycles, it should be a lesson to us today, and particularly those of us you know, who are third and fourth generation Christians, the danger of just becoming slack in our Christianity mm. and not placing the priority on our Christianity that we should place on our Christianity because... You know, if we if we don't, what we do what we do is we set our children up for failure. Mm-hmm. You know, the most significant thing that I've observed in children staying in the church is children that have parents who are actually really passionate about their experience with God, and who live a genuine Christian experience, and who high and who hold high standards of what it means to be a Christian and to have Christian morals and to do things that. You know, the Bible says that we should do in honor and glory of God, not to be saved, but be in honor and glory of God. And so often we find that, you know, when, when you get Christians that have been Christians for a few generations, they're like, well, we'll slack off on this point and we'll slack off on that point and mm. we'll slack off on this one over here. And their children see their parents not making Christianity a priority. And so they're like, why should we? Mm. And it only gets worse, too. Yeah. Like at the same time, you know, God God can work in someone's life and turn, you know, and 
we know people from all different kinds of situations. Yes. Uh, people who have come from great, solid parents and have left the church and ended up in jail. I know people like that. I know, you know, there's the other side where it's uh, like uh, they come from, you know, well, for myself, I don't come from a Christianity, a Christian family, and I'm a Christian. I know people who come from great parents and are a great, you know, follower of Jesus themselves. Are they friends that come from slacker Christian parents who are also great followers or not great followers? Like, this is the thing. God can work in any, anyone's life, but it's, I think it's something, I, I guess, to close today's study, it's just ultimately you have the choice. That's right. God knows the future. Mm hmm. But that does not mean that you don't have a choice. Yes. You always have a choice, and let's always exercise that choice to choose Jesus and to follow Jesus Christ. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay. So now it is time for... Question of the Day. So our question of the day is actually a part two of a question that was asked yesterday, which was essentially, it was from Thomas, and it was, please explain what is the meaning of the monstrous symbol in the Catholic Church? It's a really good question. So the monstrance, the monstrance is something that is not only used in the Catholic Church, it's also used by high church Anglicans and high church Lutherans. Um, the reason that they have this is that it is a receptacle in which they can place what is called the host, and then worship it. And so it's very, very, the monstrance is something that is very, very decorative, um, and we'll go through some of the symbolism in just a moment that is attached to your typical monstrance. Uh, but before we do, we need to understand what the host is. The host is a round, flat wafer um, that is used in the communion service, or the mass as you would find it in these particular traditions, that is used to symbolise well, no, no, not so much to symbolize, but to be the body of Christ. Mm. And so the idea with transubstantiation, which is change of substance, or consubstantiation, which means that the substance is still changed, but it's changed by faith, which you have in a consubstantiation is what you have in the Lutheran church, is that when the priest says, basically when the priest says the magic words over the wafer, it literally becomes the literal body of Christ. And so, in other words, the priest literally, by saying those words, creates his own creator. And mm. then because it is literally the body of Christ, it gets placed into the monstrance where people can worship it because they are worshippers of Christ. And you'll find that, you know, going back through history in particular, in Roman Catholic countries, you know, whenever the priest was traveling and he was traveling with wafers or, you know, that had been consecrated, that had been turned into the body of Christ, that, you know, he would always have his servant running in front of him ringing a bell so that everybody could come out of the house, fall on their knees and worship Jesus because they literally believed that Jesus was passing their house as the priest went past their house because the priest had created Jesus. And so this is why it's placed in the monstrance. Now, the monstrance is typically, uh, obviously, you know, if you believe that this is actually the body of Christ, it's very beautiful. Uh, they're made out of gold and silver and gems and precious stones. And uh, the symbolism that is associated with the monstrance is actually really interesting. So let's have a bit of a look at it. So first of all, in the monstrance, the wafer, which is round, a round disc, is typically placed inside of, uh, held up by a crescent moon. 
And so you've got the round disc inside the present moon. That's a very, very ancient uh, pagan Babylonian symbol uh, that go, predates Christianity by thousands of years. And it symbolizes uh, the, 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 the circle of the sun, because it's perfectly round, the circle of the sun within the moon. And the sun is masculine, the moon is feminine, and with the masculine inside the feminine, it becomes a symbol of sexual union and fertility rights, uh, reproduction, and you know the, the, the earth being fertilized, basically. So this is where that, that symbol actually originates. Then what you'll find around the, the outside of the monstrance, you'll find rays of the sun coming out. Uh, this is pretty much universal, and this is why you know you look on places like Wikipedia and so forth, and it actually calls it a solar monstrance, um, because of the symbolism that you'll find. Now, often what you'll find is that you the rays of the sun that are coming out from it, and of course this dates back once again, predates Christianity by at least a thousand years or more, probably two and a half thousand years. You've got straight rays of the sun intersected by curvy ones. So straight, curvy, straight, curvy, straight, curvy, all the way around. Take a look at this next time you look at uh, a lot of crucifixes that you find or a monstrance, and you will see this repeated over and over and over again. The straight is also, of course, is a phallic symbol, and it um, symbolizes the masculine, whereas the curvy symbolizes the feminine. And what you've got, once again, is that these are fertility symbols from the ancient Babylonian mystery religions that were involved in fertility rites Mm. that were justified because of the symbol of the cross. Now, you'll always find the symbol of the cross either on top or incorporated in the monstrance, but it's never a Christian cross. A Christian cross is long on one end, long on the bottom end. This will be a cross that is has equal on both sides. Now, the cross that is equal on both sides, once again, is an ancient Babylonian cross. And it symbolized the balance of the universe or the balance of nature. Uh, the ancients noticed that where you have up, you have down. Where you have black, where you have white. You have Where you have male, you have female. Where you have good, you have bad, etc. And so by, having, by believing in this concept of the balance of nature, if there was too much good in the world, it had to be balanced by evil. And wars and immorality and so forth were a way of doing that. And so this is just, I guess, a little bit of a taste of some of the symbols that you find there. Of course, uh, the concept of eating the god uh, is, you know, once again predates Christianity, very ancient pagan uh, symbol right there. And the, uh, the the wafer itself being a round, flat wafer that comes from, you know, the ancient Persian uh, religion of Mithra, where they would eat the god, eat the sun god in the form of a solar disc that was made out of bread. There's a little bit of, uh, we could probably go on and, and, and dissect a whole lot more symbolism from the monstrance, but that probably gives us the basic idea of what you'll find when you look at a monstrance. So don't forget to talk faith, to live faith, to act faith, because when you do so, you will grow strong in Jesus Christ. Thank you.
Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.